You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. I want you to think for a moment about how long you've been a Christian. Got to do the math, maybe, some of you. I know I had to get out a calculator on Friday. For me, it's been 40 years this last February since I accepted Christ. 40 years. I don't feel that old. Now, think about the biblical topic that has probably occupied your headspace more than any other in all the time that you've been a Christian. And it's quite likely that it's been the topic of the end times, because it seems to keep coming up over and over and over again. If you've bought any books, there's got to be some there on the end times. How many of you remember some of these end times movies that came out a long time ago? A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder, The Image of the Beast prodigal planet. Any of you remember those? Not that many? Oh, we might have to have a movie night here. (laughs) They were released about a decade before I was saved, so in the 70s, and uh, they were played uh, to scare every youth group in Canada, I think, all the time. It was just amazing how many times I've seen the first two movies anyway. But being that I was saved in a Bible college town in Regina, And I was exposed to then end times topics quite often from professors and special speakers in our church from our Bible college. I I got to listen to a lot of sermons on it, a lot of topics, a lot of reading too. I remember listening to, and oh man, there were a lot of, a lot of the men like Hal Lindsey, uh, Tim LaHaye, John Hage, uh, John Woolward, uh, Woolward, uh, John MacArthur, Erwin Lutzer, uh, and the Alliance's own William Gates, not Bill Gates, the philanthropist, Microsoft guy, that we have our own Bill Gates. And he wrote a book called Apocalypse Next. And all of that formed my thinking in those early years of being a believer. Then in the 2000s, other end times personalities entered the end times space. People like Jonathan Kahn, Joel Rosenberg, Joel Richardson, whom I like, and people like Tim LaHaye made a comeback with their Left Behind series, which I hate. Um, but anyway, we get back to Ezekiel today, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and we will enter into this end times space. We've talked briefly about it here and there throughout this series, but these latter chapters now, next week we get into the new temple idea. Really, we get into it today, okay, with Ezekiel 38 and 39. Last week in Ezekiel 37, we visited that valley of dry bones. God let Israel know that their hope was on the horizon. He was going to give them new life again one day. But as with all Bible prophecy, it's not always known how far out on the horizon that that prophecy will find fulfillment. Biblical prophecy is deliberately cryptic. You have to remember that going into it. And with biblical prophecy, there's this already but not yet aspect to it. There's sort of this immediate or at least near immediate unfolding of a prophecy, but then there may be another unfolding and maybe even another until it finds its final fulfillment. Chapters 38 and 39 have what I would call future end times or eschatological unfoldings and fulfillments to it. But there are also very clear references to known Old Testament places and events. And we're going to see names today that if you've been an end times enthusiast at all, you'll recognize like Gog and Magog, uh, Tubal, Meshech, and Tagorma, those kinds of things. But before we get into it, let's pray. Because I know that sometimes uh, people have certain positions that they hold very dear. And I hope today that you will hold them a little looser. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment. Thanks for your word. Thank you for prophecy. It is fun getting into it and trying to figure out certain things about how things will unfold in our future. And yet, Lord, there are many things that are yet to unfold, but the one thing that will unfold, and we will all know it, is the return of our Jesus. When he comes, he will set all things right. And we, his church, his body, will be with him. And we bless you for this opportunity to study your word today. Guard our hearts, Lord, today against skepticism. Uh, Guard our hearts towards jealousy. Uh, Guard our hearts towards things that would cause us to not hear what you would have to say to us today. And we bless you for all that you're going to do. And God's people said a hearty amen. All right. In the first six verses of both chapters 38 and 39, you have this reference to a prince from the far north who leads a great army against Israel. That reference seems to be the focus of many end times authors these days. So I'll pick up on that first and then we'll get into a little biblical geography lesson for us. Okay, Ezekiel 38 uh, verses 1 to 6. All right, you there? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer, with all its troops, and Beth to Gorma, far from the far north with all its troops, the many nations with you. Chapter 39, verses 1 to 6. There's a lot of other things there. We'll get to some of them later, but for the most part, this is our text for today. Verses 1 to 6 and 39. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. And then you will strike your bow from, and I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire from Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastal lands, and they will know that I am the Lord. All right, who is this northern prince? Some end times teachers think they have it all figured out, but honestly, serious Bible scholars serious commentators don't have anything definitive. Ever since the Second Temple period from about 516 B.C., less than 100 years from Ezekiel's time, all the way to Jesus to 70 A.D., in all the Jewish literature from the period, the writers of all of all the writings that you can find, they will try to try to figure out where, who this Gog is and where Magog is. And they all disagree on whether or not he should be associated as a specific uh, historic figure or whether he's purely mythical. 
The only thing they can agree on is that Gog was or will be an eschatological end times enemy. That, they all say, will happen. There are a few ways that scholars will try to determine Gog's identity. One primary way is through geography. When you read these two chapters, there's a lot of place names here. There's places like Meshech and Tubal, Persia, Cush, and Put. So scholars just turn to a good Bible map from Ezekiel's day, like this one up here from the Holman Bible Atlas. And it's pretty clear where these places are. According to the text, Gog is the prince of Magog and Tubal. Apart from Ezekiel 38 and 39, the name Gog only appears in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 5 verse 4, where Gog is a descendant of Reuben, one of the sons of Jacob. Remember, Jacob was also called Israel, and he was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Magog, the place, appears in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as one of the descendants of Japheth, a son of Noah. And often people's names became place names in the old world as settlements happened and towns and villages and cities were built. Genesis 10, verses 1 to 2, this is from the table of nations. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The Jephethites, the the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madiah, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Now, as you read these, not all of those that are listed as allies against Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are to the north of Israel. Like Put and Cush and Sheba, when you look at them, they are south along out of Egypt and into that other territory. But scholars have not been able to nail down a location for Magog, geographically, historically, archaeologically. However, when you read about one of the judgments on Magog in Ezekiel 39, verse 6, it does say this, I will send fire on Magog and on those living in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. It appears that Magog may have to have some sort of coastal location near them. It it, it must be near a coast, and as Javan is, where you'll see it up there by modern-day Greece. Perhaps the most respected Bible scholar on Ezekiel, Daniel Block, he has like two thick commentaries called the New International Commentary on Ezekiel. He says, it seems best to see Magog in the territory of Lydia in western Anatolia, that is, Turkey. Pliny the Elder, a first century Roman military, so what does the first century people think about it? Well, Pliny the Elder says this. He was a historian, and he places Gog on the border of Syria, and which is, again, modern-day Turkey. Hippolytus of Rome, a third century Christian theologian, 235 A.D., in his works entitled the Chronicon, he connected Gog with the Galatians in Asia Minor, again, modern-day Turkey. Notice that also in this list of the descendants of Japheth are Gomar, Tubal, and Meshech. And all of these descendants are known to have resided in the lands north of Israel in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. This is also true of several of the other places named in Ezekiel 38, like Beth uh, Beth, uh, Tagarma, 
Tagarma was also a descendant of Gomar in the table of nations in Genesis 10.3. Cush and Put of Ezekiel 38.5 are also in the table of nations in Genesis 10 as the sons of Ham. They're known locations around Egypt. Sheba and Dan from Ezekiel 38.13 are the sons of Ramah in the table of nations and they are known to have known to be located on the western coast of the Red Sea. Now, Popular end times writers and authors, like from the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, and, uh, and along with Ed Heinsen, in their Encyclopedia of Popular Bible Prophecies, place both Meshech and Tubal in Turkey. Ron Rhodes of a more current book, and he is a, a significant Bible scholar, he writes that Meshech and Tubal are in Turkey in his book Northern Storm Rising. What we've seen from the table of nations in Genesis 10 is a clear geographical identification of where these places are that Ezekiel was talking about and when he writes about these end times enemies. And they are all in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, what used to be called Anatolia. Some are south of there, but all of them are south of the Black Sea. Now that's significant for later. Every Bible map and every Bible scholar will affirm this. But there is no match in the table of nations or anywhere in the Bible for a person named Gog, just that he was from Magog and that he was the chief priest of Meshech or the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Now, I know that many popular end times teachers today try to claim that the region of Meshech and Tubal are located north of the Black Sea. See on the map here, we've got them in Russia. But biblical scholars and biblical geography know where these cities were, and they were nowhere near Russia. Moscow is not Meshech, and Tubal is not Tobolsk, even though they sound like the same. We don't study the Bible like that, though. Moscow and Tobolsk are about over 800 kilometers, or 800 miles, sorry, from the Black Sea, and they are not connected to the coastline with Tyre, whom we learned, remember, in 27, needed to have a coastal access for shipping and trade. According to the prophecy in Ezekiel 27, Meshech and Tubal needed to have access to that, and that would have been around the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, they have to have ships in order to trade, and Russia just doesn't have that. This identification of Russia and Gog and Magog and Meshech and Tubal goes back decades, though. It's, it's what Dr. Michael Heiser calls a dishonest Cold War hermeneutic, where end times teachers try to identify these places with current world enemies, like Russia, by using like-sounding names to make the connection. And of course, Russia being in the news again as a major nuclear threat, well, this teaching has regained traction today, doesn't it? But you, can, but you can't ignore the maps, folks. Again, the prince, the Antichrist, is not coming from Russia. Russia is not Magog. Uh, Meshech is not Moscow. Tobolsk, or Tubal is not Tobolsk. It's impossible according to our Bible maps. Any map that puts them in Russia is photoshopped in order to stretch their view. Honestly. Now, some of you might be wondering, what about Rosh? My Bible has the Gog, that Gog is the prince of Rosh in Ezekiel 38 and 39. 
Yeah, if you have a New American Standard Version or the New King James Version, not the original King James Version, or, or the American Standard Version, then you will have written in there, Gog is the Prince of Rosh. But you just have to consult any commentary and you'll discover that it is a well-known mistranslation. But some end times writers, like Hal Lindsey and and Tim LaHaye, Hal's long gone already, but they still like to peddle this because it fits their theory that the Antichrist will come out of Russia because Rosh sounds like Russia. But it's not new to them. The Rosh-Russia interpretation was first introduced to Christians in the first edition of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1917. But Dr. Edwin Yamuchi, who is considered by all scholars to be the authority on biblical people groups, and on Semitic and Ugaritic languages, debunks this Rosh and Russia interpretation in his book, Foes from the Northern Frontier Invading Hordes from the Russian Steppes. He writes that the Hebrew word Rosh has nothing to do with modern Russia. He calls the Rosh equals Russia comparison a linguistic fallacy, a false etymology. Essentially, Rosh is never used as a proper name to refer to a nation anywhere in the Bible. Again, scholarship, biblical archaeology, and a good map show you where these cities were, and they were nowhere near Russia. I know I have to keep repeating that because it's such a popular theory today. Now, what about the far north then? Well, Ezekiel 38, verse 2. I'm going to read it in a few different translations. Ezekiel 39, sorry, verse 2 in the NIV says, I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. The ESV says, and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. The King James Version says, from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. Hebrew scholars, uh, Kohlenberger and Mons, uh, tell us that the Hebrew word for north is Safon or Tzahan. It refers to one of the common directional points on the compass. Now, since the Hebrew word is Zephon, it makes one wonder if it's, there's maybe a relation to the uttermost of Zephon in Isaiah 14, which is a parallel final battle scene where Satan attacks the people of God. Let, let me read it to you. Go back a few chapters to Isaiah Isaiah 14, 13. You said in your heart, this is the king of Babylon speaking, we all know that it's a parallel to Satan, I will send, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high and I will sit on the mount of assembly, underline that, in the far reaches of the north. That's the ESV. The NIV says, utmost heights of Mount Zephon. Understand that in the mind of the Israelites, north was not just one of the directional points on a compass. North was also considered a place where evil lurked. And it was something of a supernatural or unworldly evil, otherworldly evil. Now, if you've been to Caesarea Philippi in Israel on a trip to the Holy Land, you are aware, you should be aware, depending on how good your guide was, you should be aware that of, of, a, of the northern place that Caesarea Philippi was. Caesarea Philippi is about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it, is in, it is in the Golan Heights, 
and it is at the foot of Mount Hermon. That's Bashan territory, if that rings a bell to any of you. Mount Hermon is part of a mountain range that divided the land of Israel, sort of seen as the uttermost boundary of Israel. And everything north of that, like ancient Syria and Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, that was all beyond. But the, the, the Phoenicians were worshipers of Baal. Think Jezebel. In fact, all northern peoples worshipped Baal. And Mount Hermon was his mountain. Judges 3 calls it Baal Mountain. Another of Baal's titles is Prince or Lord of the Underworld. So it's not surprising then that later uh, it Baal becomes Baal Zebul and Baal Zebub, titles for Satan in, late, in later Jewish literature and even in the New Testament. Anchor Bible Dictionary says that Bashan was inhabited as early as the late 4th century, uh, 4th uh, millennium BC by the Nephilim. Bashan and Mount Hermon specifically was the place in Jewish theology where the rebellious sons of God in Genesis 6 descended to bring their rebellion to earth by mating with the daughters of men producing the Nephilim. And the people of the Old Testament from Moses on had to deal with all that. David put an end to them. It has always been seen as a domain a high place for supernatural evil. And as you'll see on the overhead, at the foot of the mountain, there is a cave. And in it is a pit. It got covered over by an earthquake that happened, but it was seen as, an, as a bottomless pit. And it is where the worship of Pan, a Greek god, took place in Roman days. Even before that, though, it was considered the gate of hell. It was probably more famously biblically famous for being the place where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Remember that? And Jesus declares, when Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, what is it that Jesus said? Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the what? Gates of hell will not prevail against it. He made, it, made this claim in the heart of Baal territory, in the region where much of the supernatural evil in the Old Testament world was centralized. This was Israel's north and the gateway to everything supernaturally evil. In his book, Reversing Hermon, Michael Heiser states that an ancient reader would not only have feared the north because of the threat of invading political tyranny, but for supernatural theological reasons as well. He describes this as the conceptual grid. In other words, sort of like the worldview through which Gog and Magog must be understood. And because historians can't find any solid reference for Gog, Gog geographically, historically, or biblically, biblically, and the fact that the far north from which Gog hailed was so clearly associated with dark supernatural powers, Heiser and many, most scholars will suggest that Gog was more than, some, more than something natural, more than just a man, a supernatural terror. He contends, and I agree, Heiser does, that a supernatural figure of darkness actually connects well with the Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10 uh, reference, which mentions Gog and Magog along with Satan and human armies arrayed against Israel, the holy city. 
Heiser says that in the old, in the world of Ezekiel, Gog would have been perceived as either a figure empowered by supernatural evil or an evil semi-quasi-divine figure of the supernatural realm. An antichrist bent on the destruction of God's people, the church, the new Israel. And that's why a supernatural enemy (coughs) in the end times would be expected to come from the seat of Baal's authority, the north, the supernatural underworld realm of the dead located in the heights of the north. So how is this final battle going to take place? Well, first of all, where will it take place? Turn to Ezekiel 38 again. We're going to look at verses 7 to 9. Verse 7 says, Get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days you will be called to arms. In future years you will, be, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate. They have been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and all the nation and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. He's saying this to God. Verse 30, or chapter 39, verses 1 to 6 again. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you uh, from the far north (coughs) and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike you, strike your, then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel, you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds. and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on all those who live in the safety of the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. The phrase, on the mountains of Israel, is repeated throughout these chapters as being the focal point, the focal point geographically of the final battle when Gog and his nations invade Israel. Where is this? Well, let's go to Revelation 16 where we'll see it more clearly. Revelation 16, verses 16 to 20. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The the great city split into into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon, the great, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not, break, could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. 
You hear some of the references there that paralleled Ezekiel 38. If you've been to the Holy Land, or if you've read any end times books, most will claim that the final battle of Revelation 16 takes place in the Valley of Megiddo. The term that John uses in verse 16, Armageddon, as John says, is a Hebrew term. However, it has been transliterated into the Greek, this is known, which, the, uh, which Revelation was written in, and then translated into English for us. Now, that being said, the capital A in Armageddon is known as a rough breathing mark in Greek because the Greek language doesn't have an H. So it should, be, it should read Har-Mageddon. Har-Mageddon. The first part of the term Har means mountain, and the second part is obvious, Megiddon. So combined, the two, so combined, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew phrase is Har Megiddon, the mountain, uh, or the mount of Megiddon. Now, because of the similarity of the sounds of the name, some have connected Megiddon with Megiddo. Megiddon is, as the Hebrew says, a mountain, Har. But Megiddo in Israel is not a mountain; it's a valley, it's a plain. I've been there. Many of you have too, probably. The only reason it has any height to it at all is because it's also a known tell, an archaeological mound where human-built construction of town after town was built upon one after the other. But it's not a mountain. And this is consistent with Zechariah 12 that tells us that it's a plain, not a mountain. So the fact that there never was a mountain in Megiddo in the Bible suggests a second possibility. And Zechariah 12, verse 10, suggests another location. Listen to it. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will, know, or they will look on me, the one they have pierced, that's Jesus, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in where? Jerusalem will be as great, this is a future event now, this is a future event, as the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. That's a past event. It's a comparison. The weeping will happen in Jerusalem, not on the plain of Megiddo that was brought up as a, it was just brought up as a comparison. This makes sense if you think of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is also called a mountain. It's Mount what? Zion, and it's referred to a mountain in Ezekiel 38, verse 38 and 39. Listen to verse 4 of 39. On the mountains of Israel, that's a biblical reference for Jerusalem and its territory. You will fall, Gog, you and all your troops and the nations with you. Biblically, it's more consistent to think of the final battle of Gog and Magog against Yahweh that it will take place in Jerusalem where they pierce Jesus just outside, in the, in the valley. Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15. This is from the ESV. How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Verse 1 tells us that this is the king of Babylon again. Again, a reference to Satan in Revelation. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. That's a reference to the sons of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. 
In the far reaches of the north, there's that again, Mount Zephon, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This passage is not about the fall of Satan in the garden. This is Armageddon, the final battle of Revelation 16, and it is a battle of cosmic proportions. Folks, the king of Babylon, Gog, the beast, Satan, whatever, is from the far north, Zephon, Bashan, past Mount Hermon. And he will try to exalt himself to the mountain of God in Jerusalem, where Yahweh sits among his divine council, who are the stars of God in this passage, and also in Job chapter 38, God's divine council. Armageddon, Har-mageddon is a battle for God's dominion over Jerusalem on the mountains of Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, to determine who will, rule, who will rule the mount of assembly that is the throne of God. The king of Babylon, Gog, the beast, Satan, has wanted always to be the most high, but he will be brought down to the far reaches of the pit. Amen? But Jesus will be victorious. Amen. Friends, there is so much more in these two chapters in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that I have time for. I didn't even get into verse 4 of 38 where Yahweh says, I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws. That's a reference to Leviathan, the, the chaos monster that keeps coming up throughout the Old Testament. Speaking of a personified supernatural evil. Ezekiel 39 verse 6 where Yahweh says, I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. That's the great supper of God in the book of Revelation verse, uh, chapter 19. We don't have time to examine all of the prophetic instances here in these two chapters, but I encourage you to. I encourage you to. But when you do, can you do yourself a favor? Don't read it from eschatological end times books. Read it from your Bible. If you read it from your Bible, you won't have the biases of those end times books in your head. You'll be able to read it straight from God's word. Use the footnotes and the cross-references in your Bible to search out names and phrases. It's in there, always. So here's what I know, though, in case you want to know. Here's what I think. Since Babylon plays such a prominent role as an ongoing enemy of Israel in Jerusalem all throughout the Old Testament and even in the concluding book of Revelation, I think that the threat obviously is not Russia, like we've said. It's not going to be Europe. It's not Rome. The Pope is not the Antichrist, okay? And it's not the United States or China. Those are the two new ones these days. All of those have been proposed in end times books for sure. Because what they like to do is they like to take the newspaper and read our, their Bibles into it. Oh, this is happening. This must be in the Bible. No, the final battle will be from the area north of Israel. It will be from the region of Anatolia, which is Turkey. And it will involve Islam as the major threat of the people of God it always has. And it will probably involve Iraq and Syria where the Babylonian Empire once ruled supreme over this entire region. From the Euphrates all the way to Turkey. But we do not need to fear this battle, do we, folks? 
We don't need to fear it because the Lord Jesus will conquer all who campaign against the people of God. Amen? Jesus is coming back again. Amen? Let's believe that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how, even though it's cryptic in some places, they're pretty good indicators, Lord, of what this final battle will look like. But I thank you that over and over and over and over again, from Ezekiel on to the book of Revelation, there is a reminder there constantly that is a theme of Ezekiel that when you do these things, when these things happen, the nations will know that I am the Lord. And so, Lord, today, your people, we in this building, those online with us, we all declare you Lord Most High. There is no competition. The devil will never usurp your power. He will never, ever be able to come against the church and be victorious because Christ, by his own blood on the cross, guarantees our victory. And so, Lord, we anchor ourselves on that hope, knowing full well that no matter how it all unfolds in the end, that, Lord, you will reign supreme. You are God, most high.